0: Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, Episode 6. Thanks for coming back to another episode of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brandon, and today we're going to talk about one of my absolutely favorite topics to discuss with business owners before, during, and after we do strategic planning, and that's leadership. I, I don't know of another area when you start getting into the ideas behind growing a business and, and building a strategic plan that is geared toward growth. There's no other area that will hold companies back more than ineffective leadership and so this is this goes back to that series that we started with a few weeks ago kind of the foundations the housekeeping series where we talked about uh, time and task management customer service now we're talking about leadership and leadership kind of goes to this section of the housekeeping uh part of the of the practice that we talk about that's kind of team management um And and the more you talk about team management, you get into actual leadership principles. So that's what we're going to dive in today. And when I talk about this with business owners in the context of doing a strategic plan, it's usually because we're addressing some ineffective practices in their um, direct reports around leadership. So we're going to talk. What we talk about today applies all through the organization, but. I don't want you to think that there's a tendency to think when you talk about leadership about the CEO. And, yeah, this is the CEO, but it it also applies to line supervisors. It applies to, um, to field supervisors, customer service supervisors, general managers, um, division leaders, basically anybody who has the ability to influence others in the organization. So that's where the rubber meets the road in strategic planning is we start putting a plan together and or we usually before we start putting the plan together and we're just trying to address different issues in the organization there's some blog posts i'll link up to about issues-based planning versus goals-based planning and so for a company that hasn't done strategic planning before there's probably going to be a lot of issues that we have to address before we can get to a goals-based planning model And we may talk about that more in a future podcast. That would be a very good kind of distinction uh, to talk about is goals-based versus issues-based. But in that issues-based model, before you get to kind of the vision, vision, value, mission, vision, values, uh, grand scheme, strategic plan with three- and five-year objectives and all that stuff, you're doing issues stuff. And one of the issues that comes up is we're having a problem in this part of the business. Well, why are we having a problem in this part of the business? Well, is, you know this person just doesn't seem to get it, be able to get it done, well why can't they get it done? well they're all they say that they don't have good people and it all it usually comes back to well this person's not an effective leader of the group that they're trying to to be effective in the business with, so that's where we get into team. Team management and leadership issues, and that's what what brings us here today. This is such a fundamental part of a business that you can't ignore and expect to grow. And yesterday I was in a session with my C12 group, and we were talking about um, uh, growing people. And there was a statement by Buck Jacobs who wrote the materials that said, where there is no development of talent, there will be no growth. And that really struck me. Where there's no development of talent, there will be no growth and i it struck me because that's what I see when I work with these companies. If they can't develop talent that's usually what's holding them back. I've told people before that I believe a business owner on the strength of their personality their their personal uh will the the charisma that they hold. you can go out and create a company that's that does about a million dollars worth of business just on the strength of the owner alone an a highly motivated impassioned owner can sell about a million bucks worth of business a year. And they'll cobble together a team to deliver on that. And then the, so the next level is how do you get to $2 million? Well, they, they hire a leadership team, and they start to put together some basic business processes, and that can get them to $2 million because they're able to delegate some of the operating things that they were formerly doing and spend a little bit more time. They, they kind of hand off the cream of the crop uh, accounts, to a sales manager who can maintain those and use those as a base for growing new business, and the business owner can go out and sell another million dollars worth of business, and they get to two million. But right there, it stops. A lot of times, you can't get beyond two million unless that core leadership team becomes very effective at leadership and leveraging the people that report to them to become their best, and that's when you start to grow to three million, four million, five million, and then there's another big jump Usually I jump from like two to three three to five five to ten, and it all has to, some of it has to do with systems, but a huge part of it has to do with developing talent so the organizations that can develop talent will pass a million dollars the ones who don 't frankly won 't pass a million dollars um, so what are the mistakes and misconceptions about leadership and when I talk to business owners, this is some of the stuff that you can see that this is in the back of their thinking, and as we start to talk about team management and leadership, they some of these kind of beliefs come out, and you start understanding that their, the reason their direct reports aren't doing it correctly is because the owner of the business doesn't think about leadership correctly and hasn't been teaching them the proper principles of leadership. So number one is that I'm in charge. Being a leader means that I'm in charge, and what you, what's real, th- That, I think, is the myth. You're not in charge. The people are going to do what the people want to do. right? Just because you're in charge of the kindergarten classroom doesn't mean that the kids are going to sit down and be quiet when you ask them to. Now, what is true in every case, whether or not the kids sit down and be quiet when you ask them to, is that you're responsible for the kindergarten classroom. So the misconception is that I'm in charge. The reality is that I'm responsible, and so we have to get people to start thinking about responsibility instead of just authority. Second misconception uh, or or mistake that I hear a lot about is people complain, I just can't find good people. You hear, you know, this business would grow, but we just can't find good people. We've got a great product. We've got a great market. Our problem is we just can't find good people. Well, listen, good is a moral distinction. Things are good or bad in the people realm based on moral, moral principles. What you're really talking about is training. What you're really talking about is competency, which, which comes from training. So when I hear somebody say, I can't find good people, the reality is typically I'm not very good at training people. I'm not very good at setting up systems that people can follow and get results. Number three, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself. That's the misconception. And some of that could go back to the training, but what's really going on here, the reality is that you don't know how to communicate what you want, and you don't know how to let it go. So we're going to talk about some of that communication and nuts and bolts uh, later. Uh, fourth one is these, the misconception is, is leaders who believe that their role is to be the chief cheerleader. And they they think that their highest and best use is motivating the troops to get out there and take over the world. And that's good, but the reality is that accountability is more effective than encouragement in a vacuum. You can't just encourage people and not have some kind of accountability structure behind you that's going to hold them to account and note what they said they were going to do, and check back to see if they actually did it and give them feedback so that they can do it better next time. So it's not just about the cheering. There has to be accountability there. And then one of the last misconceptions that I see or the mistakes that I see made with leaders is they think that abdication is what they should be doing rather than delegation. So the difference between abdication and delegation, I I view abdication as... I don't want to have to deal with this, so I'm going to give it to you, and now it's all yours. And it just needs to get done. Don't I don't want to hear about it. If it doesn't get done, I don't want to hear – don't don't bring me any problems that you, you might have with it. I just want to give it to you and know that it's going to get done, and that's abdication. Delegation says that this is something that's going to get done. Here's why it needs to get done. I'm handing it off to you. Here's when I expect it back, and then I go back when uh, – according to whatever time frame we've agreed upon – and if this thing is due tomorrow, I might check in with you today and go, hey, I'm just checking in. Uh, I know that I, I gave you this project. Uh, do you think we're going to be on track? Is this going to be deliverable tomorrow? So abdication, delegation, that's usually pretty easy to fix because, again, we're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of communication later. And that, that can be very, um, very helpful for business leaders or team managers when it comes to fixing that. So... Those are mistakes, misconceptions when I, when I think about leadership and how it car- how it, it works out in organizations, I really see two kind of types uh, wh- when you get into an organization so there's what I would call formal arrangements and informal arrangements so you think about a formal arrangement is one where you 've got the title and there 's a place on the org chart with your name on it there's an expectation of all the other people that that are on that org chart that you're going to lead because your name is higher on the page than their name. They go, okay, so there's a little dotted line from me to them, so that means that I'm reporting to them, so they expect that you're going to lead them. Your authority for the things that you do comes from the people above you, so that person who's below you on the org chart knows that they need to do what you ask them to do because if they don't, there's a box higher than you that you're going to go to and say, hey, this person is not getting done, and there will be consequences for that. And that formal arrangement is, is pretty typical in larger companies, but in smaller companies and especially in professional services firms, the, the formal arrangement isn't there. So we're going to talk about informal arrangements. Informal arrangements uh, have a lot to do with workflow. So if you think about workflow – Any workflow that starts with you and then goes to somebody else and then comes back to you can result in a situation where you're an informal leader. I'll give you an example in a second. But think about you're given a project. You go to somebody else for help with that project. They work on it. It comes back to you, and then you deliver it to whomever gave it to you. That makes you a leader of that person that you've been working with. So... Whether you will lead or not in that situation is really an open question. Whether you're going to demonstrate principles of leadership, you may or you may not. And you may get recognized as a leader or you may not. There's no org chart that tells you you're a leader. It's just whether or not you're going to do the things that a leader does that will tell people whether you're a leader. And your authority in those situations really comes from the effectiveness of the people that you're leading. And that's true in formal and informal arrangements, but it's, it's much easier to identify in informal arrangements because that effectiveness uh, or that authority that comes from their effectiveness is the only authority that you have. Re- there's no other place that you can go in an informal arrangement to get leadership authority because you don't have it on the org chart. The only way you have the authority the only way you have the influence is probably a better way to put it in those informal situations is because the people that you're leading are so effective and they're effective because of your leadership so i'll give you two examples of this from my life so formal arrangement there was a time in the around 1999 2000 when i got involved with a dot com company i was I was working in public accounting and i left that business and went to uh, work for one of my clients who had a bunch of companies that he was starting, and one of those was a pure .com company, and I was the controller in this .com company, and I was also uh, an operations manager responsible for customer service in the call center that we were setting up. So I had definite positions on the org chart where I was supposed to, you know, I was responsible for certain things. Now I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I think I was... 27, 26, 27 years old. And I had this title and I had all this authority uh, because of the formal arrangement. And it was a very formal structure. We had guys from P&G and General Mills and all these consumer products company. We had uh, our IT person was the former IT manager of the year for the city that we lived in. And, you know, it was a big kind of a a big, I don't want not say bloated organization, but it was kind of heavy on the business. We have a nice, thick business plan that we're going to take out to investors, and so I have my authority all came from the formal side of things. And I, I, I personally don't feel I was very effective. There are some technical things that I did um, that I, I had a lot of pride in. And I think I was very helpful to the leadership team there, but on the grand scheme of things, I don't think I was leading anybody. I just had a position on the org chart. Now. Contrast that with the job I took after that, uh, so that company it was a dot com company and it imploded. We ran out of money and they like repossessed our office plants one day. That was kind of a seminal moment for me. I remember that it 's burned into my brain i 'm going, okay, so my days are probably numbered here they 're taking the office plants out. I should start thinking about what i 'm going to do next. So next was a public accounting firm, and I had a ton of tax preparation experience when I stepped out of the business, the public accounting firm, to go into the dot-com world. So I walk into this new public accounting firm, and I got all this tax experience, and they say, great, we'll hire you as a tax manager. So I start uh, working with kind of tax preparers and people who didn't have as much experience as me, but I didn't have a title on my door. I actually wasn't even a CPA yet. I just had a ton of experience, and – some of the people that were reporting to me were actually farther along in their schooling to get their CPA certificate than I was. But I had the experience, and I also had kind of a, – a, I think I was doing a lot of the things right that we're going to talk about later. I don't want to toot my own horn, but there was definitely some things, some elements, uh, particularly the caring part that I know I was doing – And I was trying to help people be more effective. And so there was a lot of work coming to me from the partners. I couldn't do it all. I would go to these other people for help. Um, I would train them in the process and help them get more experience. And I was trying to communicate well with them. We were kind of setting up some regular communication structures that didn't exist before where we could all get together at a set time and understand who was working on what and get ideas for how to do things better. And as a result of that, I think that I really began to blossom and understand what leadership in a professional services firm looked like because I started to be recognized not by the org chart but by my peers and by the partners as a leader. And and one of the things that happened there – I don't know if it had happened before. Maybe it happened every year, but there was a partner retreat one year, and – it was, uh, it was my impression that this was always just the partners going off. And they'd hire a facilitator, and they'd play golf for a few days, and there were a few admin people in the firm. The office manager went, and the, the uh, assistant to the managing partner would always go. But they had never asked a staff person to go before, and so they asked me to come up and, t- and partake in part of the partner retreat that year. And that was a, I, you know, that made me kind of stick my chest out and go, wow, somebody else recognizes that I've got some influence around here, and that was a very gratifying thing. So informal arrangements can be where you find uh, people who deserve a formal spot in leadership on the org chart. Conversely, formal arrangements often have a lot of people who stink at the actual practice of leadership and leading teams in them. And anytime you see an org chart, uh, you know you have to kind of figure out one of the due diligence things that we do with companies when we go in to start working with them is we'll ask for an org chart. And I'm always looking for when I get the org chart. One of the questions I have in the back of my head is, okay, are the people who are kind of at the top of this are they up to the task? Are they do they have the leadership chops to get this done? Because we're going to be asking some pretty heavy things of them. Uh, some big big changes coming our way. Do they have what it takes to lead all these people in the bottom, all these other boxes? Are they going to be able to lead these folks into the brave new future that we're going to put together? And org charts, are, you know, they can be great and they can also be horrible because they can grant that formal leadership to people, formal leadership to people who don't have the the really ability to lead. So let's talk about the ability to lead. You know, you could talk about where it comes from. You could talk about, uh, you know, are leaders born or made and all that stuff. Well, the fact is we all have to learn to lead, so I hope that they're not born because some of us don't get the luxury of of just deciding not to be in leadership. If you want to do your job well, there's a really good chance that at some point in your career you're going to be pushed into a leadership position. So if you're in a leadership position, and again, this could be anything from the CEO of the company down to you're the, the chief cook and bottle washer, but you have an assistant. You know it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be the very top of the org chart for this stuff to make a difference. And I will tell you that when, I, when we get into execution and strategic planning, it is the effective leaders in the field who make the difference – they are the stars of the show because a lot of the planning and stuff will be done by the leadership team at the top of the chart, and that planning's fun. They get to envision what things are going to be like. They come up with new ideas. They get to move things around on maps and diagrams and flow charts, but the people in the field are the ones who have to make it happen and get the results. So, when we have a strategic plan that just gets knocked out of the park and we're hitting our goals and all that stuff, I guarantee you I can go out in the field and find some leaders there. And they're very effective. So, whether you're at the top or whether you're in the middle or whether you're near the bottom, what you have to do, what you have to do to be successful as a leader is look at it from their point of view. What do the people who you are leading? What is their point of view, and we 're going to talk about short term medium term long term so what 's their short term their short term view if you 're leading someone, what are they thinking about when they wake up in the morning? Are they excited uh, maybe a little nervous? you know butterflies are just fine. you want people who are kind of excited about what 's going to happen that day, maybe a little uncertain maybe you know if they if there's not a lot of uncertainty because it's a pretty scripted job or you know they know what to re- rely on every day they still see opportunity they still see when they're coming to work that day there's a, a little bit of a spark there's something they're excited about and i can tell you when we go into companies where morale stinks leadership stinks and i i got to believe there's a connection between the two what you don't want is anxiety And this is what you'll see where morale stinks. If people are anxious, that's not good. Dread is not okay. Butterflies are okay. Dread is not okay. If you're driving to work on Monday morning and you dread going in, that's not good. And it it doesn't have to be dread because I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. It doesn't have to be dread because I think I'm going to get yelled at. The dread could just be... I don't, I'm not terribly excited. I'm just not looking forward to this. And I'll give you an example. I used to have, in in one of the companies I worked in, we had a Monday morning meeting. And I, and I think almost everybody else that, that I worked with there, dreaded the Monday morning meeting. And there were a lot of reasons that we dreaded the Monday morning meeting. One of the biggest ones was that that meeting was not led very effectively. And there were, there's a lot of reasons it wasn't led very effectively, but I don't think it was anybody's fault. I just think that nobody ever took a step back and said, what does this look like from the perspective of the people I'm trying to lead? Uh, why, why would we do this on the first day of the week, uh, first thing in the morning, when everybody's trying to just get their bearings and understand what the day is going to look like. What what was obvious is that most of the way that that meeting was put together was for the benefit of the managing partner and the other partners because it did help them. I guarantee you that it helped them be effective uh, because you know they got a 10,000-foot view without having to do a lot of homework and without having to require a lot of systems in place to update them on where different projects were and without a lot of accountability for keeping those systems up to date, that, that was their shortcut. Hey, we'll just get everybody in the same room, and we'll have them dump all this stuff on us so we know what's going on. Well, there was a much more effective way to get that stuff out that would not have resulted in dread among all of the people coming to that meeting. So short-term, what are, you, what are your employees thinking about? Not just on Monday morning, what are they thinking about Wednesday afternoon? Are they thinking, oh, my God, we're halfway there? What are they thinking Friday? Are they thinking, oh my God, I've got all this stuff that I was supposed to get done this week, and there's only five hours left in the day, and I don't think I'm going to get it done, and I'm just overwhelmed, and nobody's here to help me? And, you know, if you can't identify with, from your employee's point of view, on the day to day stuff, and you're completely out of touch with that, then you're not going to be effective as a leader. And I'm not talking about the CEO knowing every single person. What I'm talking about is if you're the managing partner, what are your other partners? What's their point of view? Where's their anxiety or dread level? Where's their butterflies? Where's their excitement? If you're uh, in a a supervisor role, that you know, we're talking about the people who are on your team. If you're the CEO with a leadership team, we're talking about your direct reports, the four or five people who – who come to you and report to you for their accountabilities. What is their anxiety level, dread level, butterflies, you know, excited? So it's not everybody, but you have to identify with the direct reports on the short term. So medium term, what does success look like for that person? And this could be basically, when I say medium term, I'll give you an example of um, for this person to be – be seen as doing their job effectively this month this quarter this year, what does success look like? What are the one or two things that they really need to do well if it's um if if the direct one of the direct reports is your controller then and you guys have talked about uh, if if that person wants to develop into the the CFO role one day you know this year they really need to get some credentialing done maybe get their cPA certificate um, Begin to work with the CPA on a monthly basis to reduce the number of journal entries. So you have to know that what, that's what success looks like for them. Hey, success for this person looks like you know one or two adjusting journal entries at the end of the audit this year instead of 15 like we've had for the last two or three years. If you're talking to uh, your sales manager, uh, you know success looks like hitting the goals that we've established. And mentoring these two new young employees that, w- that came in that we've talked about have a lot of potential, but they're going to need a lot of hand-holding. That's what success looks like in the medium term for that person. And how do you make success more likely or more attainable? You can't answer that question. That's what we're really after. How are you going to make their success more likely? And if you don't know what success looks like for that person, then there, you have no hope of making it more likely. You're just going to be spinning your wheels. What about the long term? what are their aspirations you know what what do they aspire to be are and you know here's the question that really hurts are you worthy of aspiration if they aspire to go where you're going you better be worthy of that aspiration if they want to be a ceo one day you better be a pretty good ceo because they want to they're they're looking at you all the time trying to learn how to be a ceo so everything that you do is going to pass through their filter of, "Is that who I want to be, or is that not who I want to be?" The other thing that I'll say about long term, from their point of view is, do, do you honor them and do they have dignity? So are uh, questions that, that revolve around that? Are, are they more fulfilled working under your leadership, or would they be more fulfilled working under somebody else's leadership? You know, people need to believe that when they come to work every day, what they do is important, and that you believe that what they do is important. Does their job add to, add to where they are as a person, or is it a career that they can invest their life in with dignity? If, if you know that the person who is working in a job should not stay in that job forever, then as a leader, you need to figure out how you're going to get them out of that position you don't need to leave it up to them. You need to figure out how you're going to develop that talent out of that position. So, if you've got a person who comes in as a, an associate salesperson and you know because of their training, because of their background, because of the ability that you've seen, that they should not, if they stay an associate salesperson for more than two years, something's wrong. What's the process to get them to a full fledged sales position or sales manager position because for that person to have dignity they're not going to have dignity in that sales associate position if they're capable of more and that's a very long that's a long-term view of things so you have to for the people and again we're not talking about the entire org chart we're only talking about the three or four or five people that report to you and i'm going to ask you to really go to school on the people who work for you. I'm going to ask you to know a lot about those people and invest a lot into those people because that's how this works. That's how you get to be more effective as a leader, making the people underneath you effective. So thinking about things from their point of view, short-term, medium-term, long-term, is kind of going to get your head in the right space for what comes next, which is very brass tacks, very kind of nitty-gritty stuff around communication. So we, we, went, we went this, um, just kind of recap real quick. So we talked about mistakes and misconceptions. We talked about formal and informal arrangements. And then we got into this kind of touchy-feely area of from you know w- looking at things from their point of view. Well, we're going to get brass tacks communication, and then we're going to get touchy-feely again, and then we're going to get super touchy-feely, but also super practical. So that's where we're going. So communication, I don't have a lot to say about communication because I think we try to make it way too difficult. If you talk to, go back to their point of view, if you talk to them, short-term perspective, what do you expect communication-wise? They'll tell you that they want more communication, but what they really want is less interference, and that means more effective communication. So how do you make it more effective? It has to be predictable. Predictability is one of those things that your employees will love you to death for. Your direct reports will love you to death for. And if they don't know whether or not they're going to hear from you, it's very unsettling. They just don't know where they're going to stand. If they know that a certain time every day they're going to have a set meeting with you, then their anxiety level drops by 80%, I would say. And I'll go back to one of those practices. You'll hear me preach this over and over and over again. Vern Harnish, in Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, advocates the daily huddle. And this comes from John D. Rockefeller would have lunch with his direct reports every single workday. And during that time, they would talk about... Personalized, and they would talk about business and he would he would want to know what's happening in their departments and their divisions are they hitting their numbers what's holding them up that kind of thing so he advocates the daily huddle i would say if you want to make communication predictable there's nothing that you can do better than the daily huddle to make that happen and the daily huddle works like this it's at a set time every single working day And when I had the tax and accounting firm and we had several employees in one physical office, we had an alarm clock in the conference room that went off at 11.11 every single day. And people would stop what they were doing, and they would come and they would stand around a whiteboard in the conference room. And we would ask uh, three questions during that time, and the answers would go on the whiteboard. So the questions were, what are you going to get done in the next 24 hours? Number two – Did you get done yesterday what you said you were going to get done in the next 24 hours? And number three, are you stuck on anything? And with those three questions, we were able to communicate in about 15 minutes among four or five people where everything was going. And again, this is not getting 30 or 50 or 100 employees in the same room every single day. You're only talking about your direct reports. And in a company where it's done well, this trickles down through the entire organization. So the senior leadership team gets together every single day for a daily huddle. The, then that senior leadership team gets together with their direct reports after the meeting and pushes down the information that they have. And then those kind of middle manager positions, they get together with the supervisors that report to them, and they have their huddle. And then those supervisors get together with their field crews or their people who are out doing the work in the in the company or shop floor or retail sector behind the counter whatever it is and they push that stuff down to them. And what are we talking about? We're talking about investing in your direct reports. You're going to you're you might have to be in one of those huddles participating cuz your leader might be doing one where he's wanting to meet with you. And so that might take 15 minutes of your day to meet with him and then I'm asking you to commit another 10 to 15 minutes of your day to your direct report. So 30 minutes a day out of your 7 to 8-hour to 9-hour workday to become an effective leader and to work under an effective leader because if if you're getting it from above, there's a really good chance that you've got a pretty effective person. And it amazes me. I mean, if an engagement survey after engagement survey, companies who have outsiders come in and poll employees and ask, you know, what can we do better as a company – The number one response again and again and again and again and again is communication. And there's one thing that companies can do every single day that only takes 10 to 15 minutes a day that will solve the communication problem. And over and over and over again, I hear as the consultant going and making these suggestions, there's no way we could do that. Every day you have to have a meeting? No. I mean, it's hard enough for us to get together once a week. Yeah, and the reason that you have crappy communication is because you won't commit to make it better. So I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit about that um, every time it's brought up because when it's done, people come back a month, three months, six months, a year later and say, "The, the most important thing that you've done for us is get us to meet every single day. It's changed the way we work around here. It's changed the way we communicate. And we could probably do an entire podcast on the daily huddle. That would be a great idea uh, where we could go out and interview companies who are doing this and interview the people who are participating, get their take on the before and after. But one of the biggest immediate benefits is fewer interruptions to the leader during the day because if the direct reports know that at eleven, 11 they're going to get some face time and some ear time with that leader – then they will hold off at 3.50 the afternoon prior going, "Ah, I could go into his office and ask him about this, but I'm going to see him in the morning, so I'm just going to put it over here and I'll get to it tomorrow. So make your communication predictable. If it's not daily, okay, if you don't want to drink the Kool-Aid on the daily huddle, you still have to commit to a structure for it to be predictable. And it can't just be predictable like, well, they know every time I'm in the office, I'm going to stop by and see how they're doing. No, no, no. That's not what I mean by predictability. I mean predictability like they know three days from now when they're going to meet with you. And they don't have to look at your calendar to decide when that's going to be. Okay, I, You're going to tell me I'm asking a lot, but I am. I'm asking you to be an effective leader, which is a lot, especially if you're ineffective now. So make it predictable. Um, let me see. What's in my notes here? Oh, here's, this is big. When Not only is it unsettling when they don't hear from you, knowing when they're not going to hear from you allows them to kind of put their head down and go to work and try some new things. So think about it from their perspective this way. If I know that you're going to ask me about my projects every Thursday afternoon and that's the set time that i know i'm going to have to give an answer for everything that, that where i'm at and let's say that it's tuesday morning i'm going okay so i got almost 3 full days i've this this project that i was given last time it didn't go so well in this area i'd like to try something new and if it goes well it's going to save me it might save me a half a day if it goes poorly um It's probably going to cost me half a day. But I don't have to talk to him until Thursday. So I'm going to try it. I'm going to try something new. And this happens, guys. I am not... this This is about as practical as you get. When people know that the boss is not going to be around for a while, they will try new things. And they will get better. When they're constantly looking over their shoulder, wondering if you're going to pop up like a gopher out of a hole to see how they're doing, then they're going to be on edge. They're not going to try anything new. They're not going to take any risks because they don't have the time to fix them if they go wrong. When you make your communication predictable and when you make your accountability predictable, then it gives them the freedom to try some new things, and that's what you want. What else about communication? Not only does it have to be predictable, it needs to be about more than just tactics. You have to, when you're talking to your folks and you're sending them emails and you're texting and all whatever form of communication you have whether it's whether it's a set time or whether it's impromptu it has to be about more than just tactics because the how to they can probably get on the internet right i mean they can go they can do a google search and figure out how to do most things the tactics are not the hard part what what good leaders will talk about is why not just the what but why are you doing this so we have this project, and the the normal way that we do this is we get all the deliverables from all the different suppliers up front, and then we put those in a Gantt chart, and we use that to hold people accountable. The reason that we do that, why we do that, is because a couple of years ago, we had this one major supplier. He's our biggest customer, and he said... I really like Gantt charts. So from now on, I want everything on a Gantt chart. So I know that Gantt charts might not be the best thing for you, but the reason we have to do them on Gantt charts is because this customer kind of drives that whole process, and it's easier to accommodate that customer than it is to build two separate processes. That's what a good leader would do. A bad leader would just say, Put it on a Gantt chart because I told you to put it on a Gantt chart that 's the way we do it around here that 's all tactics there's no why in there. Good leaders will talk in what if terms, not about what happened. so when you're communicating and you say something like uh, well what if what if we were to not use the Gantt chart approach this time? What would happen there, knowing that this one customer really has to have it in a Gantt chart format? What would happen if we didn't do it that way? And I go, well, it would tick that customer off, and that wouldn't be good for business. Okay, but what? But what else? Well, we could probably get it done faster for the others. Okay, well, there maybe maybe there's room for us to talk about two different systems: one for the main customer and one for everybody else. What if What if I gave that project to you? Uh, could you have something back to me, say, in the next couple of weeks to look at? Whether it would cost us a ton of time to do two systems, or whether we'd actually save time—those are what-if terms, not what happened. Why did you? Why did you not do it in the Gantt chart? You know, or, or why? Did, it kills me. Mark Sims, friend of mine, who does a lot of um, effectiveness coaching and sales coaching and training—he's um, just a really neat guy that knows a lot about people and their performance and how to improve it. He, I remember him telling me one time, good leaders do not ask why questions. You know, why did you do that? They don't know why they did it. You know, it's like, why, you know, why did you screw up? Well, I, I'm not going to tell you I screwed up because I really wanted to screw up. You know, why did you do that? Uh, when you say, why did you do that, you're inviting an excuse. If you say, um, can you tell me what happened? And then we can talk about well, what if we do it different next time, All right? So, what happened? You know, what if first, what happened if something went really bad? Talk about what happened, not why it happened. The last thing about the side of more than tactics is that good leaders will ask good questions, not rhetorical questions. If you've got a bright employee uh, that's reporting to you. There's nothing more frustrating to that person who has an ounce of intelligence than a rhetorical question. Do not ask me a question that you already know the answer to. It's one of the most insulting things you can do to an intelligent human being. And I see leaders all the time who have this habit of asking rhetorical questions. And it's an ego thing, okay? So the leader knows that they can grind this person into the floor. They're not trying to confirm knowledge. They're just trying to get their point across. And unless the employee is being incred- incredibly belligerent, which hardly ever happens, you're just disrespecting the person. There are, I, I, I will almost guarantee you that 90% of the time, the employee is already stipulating that they screwed up, that somebody, something went wrong. They're not in denial of the facts there. So don't ask them a rhetorical question. If you know the answer to it, don't make them repeat it back to you. It's just insulting. Um, The last thing about communication, it happens all the stinking time. If you're a leader, you are communicating all the time. Whether or not anything's coming out of your mouth, whether or not your fingers are on a keyboard, whether or not you're dictating a text into a phone, you are communicating. Another great quote that came from our material yesterday in C12, uh, and I believe it was written by Buck, is nothing you say or do as a leader is unimportant. They're watching, not on, they're not only hearing what you're saying to them, they're not only reading what you're writing to them, they're watching what you say to other people. They're watching how you say it. They're watching the things you buy. They're watching the things your company invests in. They're watching who you spend your time with. They're watching everything. So if, if you think that you need to, your company gets, needs to get better at communication and you're the leader, not only do you need to get better at the stuff that's coming out of your mouth and your fingers on the computer, you need to get better about everything that has to do with your performance because your performance is the greatest communicator to your employees. They'll give you a pass on stupid stuff you say if they see your performance and know that you're, you're really, really trying and you're doing everything that you can. Con- the, the, the flip side of that is that they will know when you're full of BS and you're blowing smoke because the flowery words that you're saying do not match the way that you're acting. So communication, I mean, it's, a, it's probably one of the biggest things that companies struggle with. I think ninety percent of their struggle can be solved by that little thing called the daily huddle. Just making communication predictable will get you a long ways down the road and becoming more effective at it. All right, so let's get back to the fluffy stuff. That was all, you know, pretty brass tacks, hardcore. Um, I'm going to get back into kind of the motivations for for leading. As a leader, you're really a developer of potential. That's your goal. You're trying to develop the potential in these people. Without that mindset, if if that's not what you're about, then you're really just babysitting. I mean, you think about it. If all you're there for is to supervise this crew of people, you're just babysitting them. If there's nothing in them that you're trying to bring out to make them better, if you're not trying to get them to the next level, you're not leading, you're babysitting. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of babysitters out there, you know. There when there's a huge difference between a supervisor and a leader. All leaders, I guarantee you, supervise in some capacity, but v- there's not a lot of supervisors that are good leaders. There's a lot of supervisors that are just babysitting, and so when you're talking about potential, it changes the relationship from you know the babysitter, you know, watching over the the heard so to speak, it changes it to more of a teacher people relationship. You know, the teacher's gonna be graded on how well the student does. If the student fails, you know the teacher can hem and haw, but the teacher may not have taught that student very well. Ultimately the teacher's going to be graded on the performance of the student. So when you start talking about potential and how you're gonna develop that, you've got to be up to the task. If your job is a leader to know the specific potential of every person that you're leading. You have to. Otherwise, how are you going to develop it? If you don't know what they're capable of, if you don't know where they should be going, and a lot of times the most effective leaders will know better than the people they're leading what that potential is. They will see it before the person themselves will see it or admit it or believe that they're capable of doing it. So it's your talent as a leader to inspire them to reach that potential, and that's where I think this is where we get into the whole: uh, leaders are born, not made. So a leader is a developer of potential, and and so you can you can go to work as the teacher in that teacher-pupil relationship, and you can identify what a person what a person's potential is, and go to work in developing that. But the really, really great leaders, and I think these are the ones that people say, that are the reason that people say leaders are born, not made, are the ones who can inspire the person to reach that potential. So I see it, and then I, I kind of light this fire within you so that you can see it, and you're going to go out and achieve it after I've lit that fire no matter what I do. And that, that takes a lot of charisma. I, think, I do think that that's a talent. That's something that, you know, that kind of comes from your personal makeup. But here's the deal. Here's the hope for all of us who don't have that talent to be incredibly inspirational. It's your discipline as a leader that helps them reach their potential whether they're inspired or not. And you have to look no further than the uh, armed services to see this. So there are many, 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 many uh, enlisted non-commissioned officers who did not think they were going to be that way when they came to boot camp. But there was a drill instructor or a, a, a leader that saw that in them and through nothing but sheer discipline raised that person up into the leader that they are today. Discipline, the... the. Um, The process of consistent communication, deciding that you're going to delegate, not abdicate, deciding that you're going to uh, understand what makes this person tick and put a process in place so that day after day after day you drive that ticking to a higher and higher level. That's the discipline that's going to make that person reach their potential, whether they're inspired or not. They don't have to be inspired to reach their potential. It happens all the time. I've had people on my teams that didn't want to necessarily be doing the things that they were doing, but they got a heck of a lot better at them under my leadership just because I had the discipline to hold them to account for the things that they said they were going to do, the things that they knew they should do. So Talent is great. If you got the talent to inspire people, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I admire that. If you don't have the talent, and, and if you do have the talent, you also need the discipline so that you you commit to being a developer of their potential, and you won't accept anything else other than their best. You have to call people to excellence as a leader. And, and that will take a lot of discipline. Now, I want to talk for a second about when when good performers are made into leaders. So like the top salesperson becomes the sales manager kind of thing. And what people need is different from what the business needs. So when you're talking about the the salesperson, the business needs that salesperson to go out and sell their butt off. I mean, they they just got to hit the numbers. They got to make the customers happy. And that's everybody knows that that's good for the business, right? Well, when that salesperson, that top performer, gets promoted into a management position, that sales manager is now has to be concerned not about what's good for the business in terms of making the immediate sale and making the customer happy... That sales manager has to be focused on what do the people need that I'm managing, what do the other salesmen need? because if their focus is on only what the business's immediate needs are, close that sale, get the, make that customer happy they'll constantly jump into situations to fix things and put out fires and they won't hold their salesmen accountable. They won't push them to, to get better and better and better. All they're focused on is the numbers, and they'll get them by any means possible. And it requires a significant change in mindset for that top salesperson to shift gears and go into a management role. And you see it a lot of times where they're just not successful at it. The best operators, the best the best performers, do not always make the best managers. So when and and this is the key when you're transitioning from one role to the other and you you're you're going from the top performer to the manager you have to forget about your old customer and focus on your new customer and i don't think that there's a lot of training in organizations when this is done when you're the salesperson your customer is the customer it's the person who's buying something from the business But when you become the sales manager, your customer is not the person buying something from the business anymore. Your customer as the sales manager is the salesperson that you're trying to lead and train and call to be their best and and get to the next level. So what that person needs could be completely different and sometimes at odds with what the customer needs. That that guy who is having a hard time with self-confidence – he he's going to need to just put in some hours and hear a lots and lots and lots of no's to to get to the point where he doesn't take a no personally now in the process of receiving those no's he may miss out on some really good business that you know as a top performer you can go out there and close in a heartbeat but you got to be willing to let the business miss that sale in order for this person to get better and become his full potential which ultimately is going to make the business better but it's a different you have to redefine the customer when there's a redefinition of roles and when so it's funny because when you talk to companies about this idea of internal external customers They will. They they jump on board. They're like, oh yeah, the internal customer. Yeah, we got to get. You know, the customer service people need to be focused on helping the salespeople, and and accounting needs to be focused on on helping the front desk. And you know, yeah, our internal customers are really really important. And you go, okay. So there's this great saying in business that's been around forever that the customer is always right. And you've told me before that on the showroom floor, you know, the customer is always right. But when we start talking about internal customers, all we ever hear is the customer's wrong, 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 and I don't have to do this for my internal customer because they didn't ask for it in the right way. And I really challenge companies when we start to talk about this idea of roles in internal and internal, external customers, you have to carry the customer's always right into the internal customers too. And it takes some trust, and it takes some goodwill, but once you get there, it completely changes the dynamic. So that's kind of an aside, but it's related to this whole idea of internal-external customers and when you move people around in companies, um, what you have to deal with when you're trying to develop leaders. So we're almost out of time. The what? So what's the secret sauce? I mean, you guys have heard me kind of get impassioned about... Uh, communication and talking about informal and formal and looking at things from the employee's point of view. But what is it really? I mean, what what can I do today to become a better leader of the people that that I am in charge of? So not the people I'm in charge of. That's, that's a misconception, the people that I'm responsible for. I'll say anybody, I said it before, anybody can supervise. But not all supervisors are leaders. If all you're looking for is a supervisor, you can go find a babysitter almost anywhere. But it's going to be hard to find a true leader. Why is it hard to find a true leader? Well, if you don't want the best for the people you're responsible for, you're going to suck as a leader. That's just If you don't want the best for them, there is no way you're going to be a good leader. I guarantee it. I've seen enough crappy leaders to know they don't care about the people that they're responsible for. And I've seen enough great leaders to know that they absolutely 100% care, bleed heart and soul for the people that they're responsible for. And that's what makes them great leaders. If if you get nothing out of this entire hour plus that you're going to spend on this podcast, it's that if you don't want the best for the people that you're going to lead, you are going to stink at leadership. And sometimes you have to want the best in spite of what it's going to mean for you. This happens a lot when it comes to giving credit. What's best for your people is that they get the credit. That's what's best for them. But what do we see time and time again in companies? The leader takes the credit all for themselves, and the people in the back room get none of it. So what does it mean to want the best for them? If you don't care, then you can't want the best. And It really comes down to caring. And I don't want to make this, you know, kumbaya, let's hold hands and, and sing around the campfire. But if you don't serve, they may reach their potential, but it'll be in spite of you, not because of you. So... This whole idea of caring allows you to serve them. If I care about somebody, I can serve them. If I don't care about somebody, it's going to be very, very hard for me to serve them. It's going be very, very hard for me to make them my internal customer or my external customer. And some of the best retail people are people who learn to care about everybody who walks through the door. And, you know, they can sell anything to those people because they've just built this habit of being able to care about those people so they can serve them and they wind up doing great business together. But if you don't care about them, you won't serve them. If you don't serve them, they may reach their full potential, but it's going to be in spite of you, not because of you. They're going to have to work twice as hard. They're going to have to go around you at times. They're going to have to you know put up with your inconsistent communication and and not not doing what's in their best interest. And they may be effective they may reach their full potential, but it's going to be in spite of you. And if it's in spite of you, I guarantee you that your effectiveness is going to suffer as well. Eventually, people are going to find out that what's going on in that department isn't because of you. It's actually in spite of you. You're not doing what you can to make them successful. They're actually doing it on their own. So I'm going to, here's what I want to close with. I'm going to give you ten answers that every leader should know if you want to consider yourself an effective leader, go out and get the answers to these questions. For every one of your direct reports, you should know their spouse's name. For every one of your direct reports, you should know their kids' names. That's number two. Number three, you should know their kids' ages. Number four, you should know where they came from professionally. Where did they work before this? Where did they work before that? How did they get started in the business? Where do they want to go professionally? That's the next one. Do they Are they looking for a position higher up on the org chart? Do they want to work in a different industry? Is this a stepping stone for them? Um, if there's a lot of trust between you, they won't mind telling you that stuff. It shouldn't hurt their career if everybody's doing what's in each other's best interest. Next question. Their last PR. This one's a big for me. PR stands for personal record. And I grew up uh, playing sports. I was in high school athletics, college athletics. And one of the things I really like about the gym that I work out at now is that they were back to this idea of PRs. So uh, PRs were big for me when I was in track and cross country. So you'd have a PR for, like, your quarter-mile time, a PR for your half-mile time, PR for your mile time. Um, You'd also have PRs for in your weightlifting classes. You know, what's my PR for a squat or a bench press or, or whatever the exercise was. And a squat, so a squat is a personal record. Now, the PR means a ton to me. That's the best that I have done on that particular exercise, that particular job. That's my PR. And I know what that PR is because it's significant to me. That's my personal record. It's not a world record. It's not an Olympic record. No, it's my personal record. If you know what my personal record is, I have a ton of trust in you cuz I know you care about something that's very important to me. So do you know the PR for each of your direct reports? So what is their PR? Well, you might have to get creative. But if I I was in a a business um this past week, this week and uh I happen to be I was I I usually go there and I'm there for four or five hours at a time and so they give me a desk in one of the offices to work at while I'm there and I happen to be sharing the office with the person who's responsible for all the shipping stuff and getting the stuff out the door and so we were talking and she said uh they were talking about how crazy yesterday was and she's like yeah we had at the last minute we had something like six major shipments Two of them were international overnights. Two of them were domestic uh, overnights early morning and then two regular UPS pickups or whatever. That is her PR. So I know that. If I know that as her boss and one day they get out three international overnight early morning orders, I go in there the next morning. I'm like, hey, you beat your PR. You know, you, you, that was incredible that you guys got all that stuff done yesterday. You should know that for each one of their employees. When they were at their best, what did they do? What was their score, so to speak? And are you paying attention when they're working really hard and they're, they're getting their best work done? Do you know when that is? If you know their PR, you'll be able to recognize it. Uh, this one's easy. Their hometown. Their favorite spot for lunch. How they met their spouse and what this one's personal to me, what they need prayer for. I'm a Christian. I, I believe that we are to pray uh, for each other. And if I know what somebody needs prayer for, I know an awful lot about them. Not only that, if I'll commit to pray for them every day for that specific need for the next week, I won't be able to stand it until I can see them again. I will be so anxious to see that person and find out what's going on in their life, whether that prayer has been answered or not that I'll be super excited to see them the next time I see them. And that builds trust. That also means that I'm looking out for what's best for them. And that's the essence of leadership. If you can't want what's best for them, you're not going to be a good leader. So that's, that's kind of what it's about. I think that's really all it's about. I don't know if you got a lot out of this because we went a lot of different places, But don't make it too hard. When we talk to companies about effective leadership and teams and getting their people in the field to do what's right, a lot of the times the problem lies in the fact that the person who's trying to lead is only worried about themselves. And we can take that focus off of them and put it back onto the people that they're leading. Some incredible things start to happen really, really quick. So that's really what it's about. I hope there's some concrete stuff that you can take away from this. If you have comments, leave them on the show notes page, and you can get to that at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 006. Look forward to talking to you guys, hearing from you in the comments, and we'll catch you next time.